0: Welcome to Manifesto, a podcast, your regular visit to the archives of vanity, where men and women who stop making myths turn to issuing proclamations and commands. Your guides for this journey are me, Phil Cly. Unfortunately, Jacob Siegel could not make it today, but uh, we have fantastic guests to, to start us off. Peter Catapano is actually the author of our manifesto today, which is going to be I'm Going to Make a Fire, The Transmogrifications of Gary Lieb, which was published in the Los Angeles Review of Books. Uh, for the art, we're going to be talking about Lieb's work, especially the work he did for the Times and for the Stone Reader, a collection of philosophical essays Peter edited for the Times alongside Simon Crisley. Peter Catapano is an editor in the Opinion section of the New York Times. He's been working as an editor for 20 years, uh, as a writer, he he told me he's uh, starting as a neophyte in a profession he's been in for a while. You undoubtedly know the work he's edited, and he also has a new book of philosophical essays he edited for the Times called "Question Everything." And uh, we have Jess Roloffson, who informed me that she is but a lowly artist, uh, <laughs> which is not how we view her. Lonely,
1: I thought. <laughs> a lonely you
0: said artist. A little bit yeah. of
2: both, Peter. <laughs> if I'm right. being honest.
0: Right, a nonfiction sorry, so cartoonist, me... <laughs> a visual journalist, and has a graphic novel coming out called Invisible Wounds. Um, and I'm actually in it. I have on my wall a drawing of myself that, that, uh, that Jess did, actually. Uh, really fantastic to have both of you here. And the, what we're going to be doing is, for the manifesto, we're going to be doing, I'm going to make a fire. The Transmogrifications of Gary Lieb, which Peter wrote about the cartoonist Gary Lieb. And so we'll talk about that essay and then some of Gary Lieb's work. Thank you so much, you guys, for coming on.
1: Thank you, Phil.
2: Thanks, Phil.
0: So, Peter, since we're talking about your your essay, do you want to sort of set it up, explain who Gary Lieb was and, and, um, uh, what your relationship to him was?
1: Sure. Sure. <clears throat> so, um, I, uh, uh, working as a, as an editor at the times back in 2008, um, we were, uh, in the opinion department, trying a lot of experimental work and pro- and, and projects on the web. And, um, one of the things that we, um, we did was we invited a uh, an animator named gary leap to do a series of short uh, animated sh- you know animated shorts about new york city about the history of new york city and um, i was very taken by them at the time it was something that seemed very un new york times like meaning it was <laughs> very strange and bizarre and surprising and plenty of like non-sequiturs and it was not a scholarly
0: history of the districts of New York. That it it... <laughs> was
1: not scholarly at all. Um, and, and so I, I was really taken by, by, by this work. It seemed like a, a bit of real fun in the middle of a really serious, uh, operation and organization that I, I had been a part of for a while already. And then, um, I became a fan and we, and we became sort of acquaintances rather than friends, but over the years we became friendly and, um, I asked Gary to uh, create an animation for a book that I was editing. Uh, it was it was called it's called The Stone Reader. It was a book of essays that we published uh, in, in the Times in the philosophy section, and he did this sort of uh, brilliant animation uh, for the book, which we used as a trailer. And um, we just kind of gradually and slowly became friends as well as collaborators, and. I hadn't really thought about uh, that relationship very much until um, I got the bad news that he, he, he died, um, which I describe in the essay. But I, I would call our relationship uh, uh, definitely a friendship, but it was a friendship of shared uh, passions and interests rather than a long term type of friendship. And I think when I'm thinking about Gary and writing about Gary, I'm sort of dissecting that kind of relationship.
0: Yeah, it, you know the essay begins on May fifteenth, two thousand twenty-one. I wrote an email to a dead man. The man was the musician, artist, and animator Gary Leib, right? And you were asking him to to work on on this this book. And and in the email you wrote, if I could have somebody illustrate my mind, it would definitely be you. I signed it more soon and hit send, right? And then you describe that sort of peculiar thing that that happens you know you describe how two weeks pass you don't have a reply and you wrote I did what you do when you write to someone during a pandemic and don't hear back you check the internet to see if they're dead it took .65 seconds for the internet to deliver the news Gary had died very suddenly of a heart attack on March 19th 2021 he was 65 um, and um one of the, you know, when I read the essay, it, 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 um, it struck me a lot for a variety of reasons. Because it's, it's about Gary Lee's art, it's about, uh, it's about friendship, it's about a lot of things. And it's also about this sort of strange way of encountering death that um, I actually have experience with. Like I found out that somebody that I knew in the Marine Corps died via the internet, right? Um, uh, not quite the same way. Uh, and was deeply affected by it, and and it, it's probably the most alienating way that you could possibly learn that someone you knew has died, right? <clears throat> um, Jess, did you were you familiar with Gary Leaves' work before you?
2: I um, have a memory of walking past the comic book shop in Williamsburg, Desert Island, which there's a photograph of a, a window display that Gary did. And I, I didn't make the connection until I read Peter's beautiful essay. I was like, oh, I love that thing. I didn't know <laughs> who that was. And I, um, I wasn't exactly in that neighborhood all that often, but there was, I don't know how to describe it, but there was this like really cool magic about it. There were like these paper lanterns. It was for Halloween, I think. So it's just like I feel like my only
0: reference to him
2: in my like real life is sort of spooky. Like has a spooky element.
0: Right, right. You know, and and um, it's sort of funny because when when I read the essay, I realized that I'd seen his work before, but I didn't I didn't know his name. Right. He has this extremely distinctive visual style. Right. Um, and. I don't even know how would you how would you describe it? Like, what what his work look like?
2: Uh, uh, very playful, and um, w- the still drawings look like they want to be animated; like they're going to walk right
1: off the page. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. There's a, there's an incredible there's an incredible like life force to every sort of character uh, that he he sort of he conceives. The jumping off the page thing is very very much true. Uh but the spookiness is very much true too and and I, I think that was a little bit of what I was getting at in the essay, uh this kind of balance between the dark and the light <clears throat> that he uh he he navigated so well. Yeah, you know, in, in,
0: in the series that he did for The Times, like they're like parts of New York that become animated. You know, you have the, the Chrysler building becomes, a you know, a person and then is is devouring things. Uh, uh, there's like a, you know, like a, a chipmunk that turns into a Native American uh, that turns into like a Dutch master's painting and then becomes a cow and is then hit on the head with a mallet. And, uh, <laughs> and there's like a Chrysler the building. The history of New thing. York shoving steaks into its mouth and smoking cigarettes as it walks past a hooker. Like, it's just... It's
2: it's like a never-ending image cycle, too. Like, there's some type of inevitability mm -hmm. that, like, oh, after... It's just one thing after another, isn't it? That's sort of, like, what living in New York feels like. Right, right. (laughs) For good and bad. You're like, wow, what a a place.
0: I
1: mean, what is is this doing on the opinion page, Peter? (laughs) Uh, Well... Just to go back to that to that time, uh, which I think was 2008, um, you you young folks probably don't remember, but the internet was not really a big thing uh, the way it is back then. We were just in a period of experimentation where my bosses, mm-hmm. David Shipley and um, Gail Collins and Andy uh, Rosenthal, uh, were very open to people just trying things. <clears throat> Uh, that could push the boundaries of opinion. And, and um, I, I, I've always been of the feeling that uh, opinion, and and Phil, you know this well because we work together on, on, on lots of your own essays, yeah. that um, opinion is much more than uh, stating uh, uh, your view on something and then backing it up and making an argument and, and arguing some kind of policy change. Um, the idea of artists... Um, having a forum in an opinion section was something that was very important to me, uh, but really the credit goes uh, for Gary. Uh, the credit goes to David Shipley for inviting Gary, um, and at that point I, I was just a fan. Um, I mean, I think you just read a, a short, um, you just read a short kind of vignette in this little in this little animation that he did, which kind of sums up at least one view or trajectory of how, you know, New York came into being in a very short space. Um, and you know, there's a view expressed there as well as, um, uh, you know, artistic skill and storytelling.
0: Right. And it's not, and and, yeah, actually in terms of my own nonfiction, I've worked more with you than with any other, any other editor. I mean, how many pieces have I written for you, Peter? Um, a bunch
1: Uh, we've done a bunch together I I would say at least 10 maybe more but we'd have to go back to the archives (laughs) the first the
0: first uh, you're the first person to ever publish me right Um, yeah
1: according to you so uh, I I think that (laughs) we can consider that fact checked (laughs) I
2: also want to like give a shout out like peter is directly responsible for me meeting a lot of the veterans that are in invisible wounds in the graphic novel and definitely introduced me to phil and a lot of other guys um at the old stone house readings in brooklyn
0: yeah so peter had this reading series at the old stone house in brooklyn god was this 2011 2012. peter's only
2: involved in things with the word stone in them
0: yeah, <laughs> <That's> a... yeah. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Where, you know, just like a bunch of us were trying to read stuff in front of a public and, and and figure out what works and and uh, and Peter published a you know a bunch of of vet vet writers who were trying to you know some find some way of of communicating about the war not simply in a policy way but also in a kind of more literary sense right. Um, and, and Jess, you did a bunch of interviews with some of these folks, uh, that are kind of illustrated graphic novel style, um, interviews that are going to be in the book. But, you know, it's something that I'm, I'm trying to think of, uh, think about because there's this sort of way in which, like, you know, when I'm writing about, about war it's not just that i want to make an argument but that there's a kind of way of seeing the world and a kind of um relationship that i have to the subject right because it's it's a it's a part of my life i'm captured by it and you know when you're writing you don't just want to sort of give information to a reader you want to sort of expose them to hopefully a new sensibility and like capture them in, um, a new way of perceiving the world. And there's something about, you know, in, 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 in writing that's about like form and structure and rhythm and sentence and image. And, um, I mean, it's about beauty in a certain way, right? Like, or aesthetics more broadly. And I don't mean prettiness so much as sort of a a kind of, you know, deployment of a variety of, of kind of aesthetic effects that, that create that world and that sort of immersive experience for the reader such that, you know, they feel tied to that worldview, that sensibility, even if just for the time that they're, they're writing that thing, you know, I mean, I think that there's a sort of, it's, it's especially frustrating with war writing, but, um, I think with any subject that's, that's important to you, there's like this thing that is of deep importance. And then even if people kind of have an intellectual understanding of it, they don't feel about it the same way that you do. Right. Um, and there's something about, about beauty, right. That is actually sort of gets people immersed in the same thing. And when you're looking at these illustrations I don't I don't know necessarily you know I don't I don't look at the Gary Lee illustrations that he did for the Times which I strongly suggest people check out um, and sort of come away with an argument but I come away with this sort of arresting sense sense and sensibility um, that it is clearly related to a place and a history but I it sort of doesn't doesn't necessarily break down uh, to analysis. Does that, in terms of how you work, Jess, since you know, you're know you tying art to nonfiction interviews, I mean, is, does that make any kind of sense at all? I mean, how do you, how do you view what you're trying to do?
2: I'm not sure, but I w- um, I'll see if I can answer that. One thing that I thought about while you were speaking in um, the way you were describing tackling certain subjects as a writer and um, a veteran with a certain set of interests to a degree. Um, I, I think the way that Gary Lieb's work appears to me has the same invitation inward. Like it's mm-hmm. very specific, but it's like come in here and I, I just feel like I'm in, I've got my arms crossed in the back of church and I'm shaking my head. Yes, 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 I'm like totally on board with this. Um, and it's, it's sometimes it's hard to describe. So if you can, that would be the ultimate goal in making art or, um, prose is you, you just want your readers to, to feel what you're feeling or, or think the same things or just have like a, Oh yeah, you got it. And, um, maybe that's part of being a New Yorker. I don't live in New York right now, but, um, you can make eye contact with someone on the street and you're like, am I right? Like you don't have to say anything. You're sort of witnessing the same thing. And I think Mm -hmm. Gary's work had that special quality where you were um, in on the joke, but the joke wasn't mean spirited at all, which is very difficult to do in art without um, being too cynical or too gross or too transgressive. It was like just a little naughty. Um, So, so, using that as like a lighthouse i i don't know if my work does that but um i think anyone that makes pictures or puts words to page um is chasing after that connection maybe um there there are times so the way that the book is set up uh they're interviews so people are saying literal things that happened and it would be sort of boring for me to draw those things so sometimes i can play with which yeah. is really exciting. Um, one of the early comics I did, a guy was talking about... I met him at the uh, the military hospital in Bethesda,
0: Walter Reed. I was going to mention this piece. I really like this one.
2: <laughs> Thanks. So he And it was early on when I thought maybe I would be a character in the graphic novel, and I ended up getting rid of that idea um, because it ended up being like two books. It was too much stuff, but... Um, so there's this young guy and he was in Afghanistan and he was lying prone while on patrol and was shot, I think through the shoulder. And then the bullet went, bullet went out of his back. So it um, collapsed alone. So he's describing this to me as really incredible. It had happened days before and we're just sketching and we're there as a group of artists went to go sketch wounded soldiers. Um, This is where I met Peter. We had like a an art opening in dc and peter somehow got word of it and came and saw us and we were all excited there was like this gonna be this big press event <laughs> and peter was like the only guy that showed up but <laughs> i i'm all for like quality over quantity though like he was an angel sent to me to be like oh come to brooklyn uh this is where the beer and the veterans are so it, it really worked out for me but <laughs> but uh so i was at this military hospital and i'm totally enamored because i'm surrounded by um i mean yes Not to be too graphic or, like, cheap with my description, but um, a lot of these men are very handsome because they're paid to, like, work out and um, (laughs) they have to pass certain um, physical standards and they've been overseas and there's nothing else to do besides work out. So, um, like, grievous injuries aside, I was totally... (laughs) like hey how's it going and i have a captive audience so i've always had like um a bit of a boy crush situation um just with people in general but um anyway all that aside so i'm sitting there with another um, artist and we're sketching and he used to work for mad magazine so his sketches are like caricatures and they're really effervescent and delightful and i'm struggling with my colored pencil um but i was trying to get in on the street cred of being a cartoonist and um He's telling us a story, had my recorder, and his parents are there. So it's about as awkward as you could think it would be. And um, the guy I was with, Ray, was like, when did this happen? And he was like, oh, April 15th, which I was like, oh, tax day. I don't know why I thought, <laughs> thought of that. I'm afraid of the IRS. I'm a freelancer. Um, <laughs> but uh, it was like 10 days before the conversation we were having. We were shocked. We were like, wow, that's so, that just, just happened. And he had gone from Afghanistan to Germany to this place so there's a a lot of um time jumps like how much of that do i want to show we're in the hospital when the story starts so i started drawing that but when he describes being shot i was like well first of all i'm a total wuss and i I don't really like violence and i don't want to draw that and it's also difficult to literally draw someone who was like lying down on the ground and got shot in this really particular way i was like i don't think that would help illuminate the, the prose of what he's saying so, I drew this circle uh, over like three panels that just gets bigger, um, sort of imitating like a gunshot wound. Um, very, very simplified, obviously. Uh, my partner's an ICU nurse and has seen them, and it's not a circle that gets bigger, it's a, it's a lot of other complicated things. Um, but there were also other things he talked about. It just seemed like things weren't really working. Like, he was, it took him a minute to realize he had been injured. And so I drew a light switch that's off, um, which at the time I thought was the most clever thing ever, but, um, I'm still kind of proud of it, but it's, um,
0: it's, it's a great sequence of panels and it, it gives you something, you know, when, when you see it, um, it gives you a totally different feeling and sensibility than if you were sort of drawing in clinical detail the actual violence which would be sort of which would be limited right I mean yeah because I think
2: that maybe that's an invitation for the reader to come in if you if you do less then there's more room for the brain to think of things maybe
0: right and it's and it's also it's like I'm not going to give you the spectacle of violence that you're used to right you know I'm not going to uh, I'm going to give you something that is obviously abstract. That's obviously trying to relate more to something psychological and personal and experiential than physical, right? Um, and it's yeah, it's really. Um, I mean, it's it's, it's really powerful.
2: Um, I'm, I'm lucky that my instincts are like f- lean towards laziness also like I, was <laughs> like, I don't want to draw that and then and then I was like well what can I get away with or like what else is going on here besides this person being shot and maybe I think they're kind of cute or I, I don't know like I, there was a lot going on but also like what do you focus on so I don't know like just there's something about time slowing down repeating an image um, mm-hmm. Gary does really beautifully in animating his stuff or having the same sort of figures appear yeah. and disappear. Um, but when you repeat an image over a few panels, it harkens to animation, of course. But it also plays with time. Um, so time is passing, but because you're drawing the same image in three squares next to each other, it feels like time is slowing down. Which I'm also—I said this before—I'm a huge wuss. When I cut my finger, time stops. I'm like, oh, I get a <laughs> yeah. bandaid. I, I, I just—I get so upset if I've been injured. So um, I mean, to be like injured that catastrophically and then. And process that. I think that was what was most interesting to me. Yeah,
0: with with, with Gary's work, I feel like time is speeding up. Yeah, <laughs> most of the time. Absolutely. Yeah.
1: yeah. No, there's an, in, an enormous compression. So there's a couple of things in, in his work, and you know, one is that definitely the compression of time, like Phil you just described, <clears throat> and I tried to get at a little bit in the. Uh, I have a passage in the essay where I describe what I think. Uh, how Gary would have animated ah, my yeah. sending an email to me, to him after he died, which was <clears throat> actually very strange. Well, so the other thing I want to say quickly, because Jess also mentioned this about Gary's work of, of one thing changing into the other. Um, so and you also mentioned Mad Magazine and, and I've always made a Mad Magazine association with Gary because his work is absurd and bizarre and like adolescent like that, yeah. but it's yeah. sort of like Mad Magazine on acid. That's the way <laughs> I saw. <clears throat> um, and uh, you know, somehow that really entertained me. Um, but this sense of, of one thing always turning into the other became this theme in how I was thinking about his death because yeah. I'm not someone who thought about reincarnation, but because of the pointlessness of, uh, uh, you know, what I saw as the pointlessness of his death, you know, dying of a heart attack during a pandemic instead of the pandemic, you know, him being at the height of his powers, all these things made no sense to me. Um, And uh, the fact that he would just be gone wasn't really an option I wanted to to consider. So looking at and watching his work and watching all these, that's why it's called the transmogrifications of Gary Lieb, um, that everything that you see a second later becomes something else and that there's an endlessness to it um, that he can, you know, the fact that he was able to kind of compress time and then sort of suggest eternity at the same time, I, I found really fascinating. And it sort of helped me process uh, you know, his body leaving the earth. Um, yeah. Well, let me... Uh, so, uh,
0: you know, that, that, that that's
1: something sort of, you know, an artist's work can change what it means to you at various times. I never really thought about that very much when I thought about Gary's work before, but after he died, it sort of took, out, took on that other that other meaning.
0: Yeah, let me read that bit because it's great. Because um, you're, you're going through and you're also feeling this sort of sense of... You kind of w- wondering why was I so deeply affected by his death, right? Like you were friends, but but not sort of super close, right? Like you, you know, you're finding out that he's he's dead right. much later. I was
1: I was having a sort of grief that I that I felt like maybe I did, I hadn't earned because I I didn't know him well enough, and 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 he had yeah. family members and a, and a daughter uh, who were suffering in a much greater and more intense way. But this was really. Yeah, it was an investigation of that feeling. Um, I I have been and, in and exactly the same spot.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, with with a marine who died, where I was sort of deeply affected, but I I almost felt like a certain guilt, as if I was like um. Uh, carrying a certain amount of grief that I hadn't hadn't earned, right, in, in precisely the way because I didn't know the person that much, and yet they're. Their death deeply affected me because I mean because they meant something to me right at the end of the day yeah.
1: Um, well, you know, if I could just interject about your the very first essay that that I received from you which we published um, to me had that quality where you were witnessing uh, a, the grave injury and uh, eventually uh, you know the death of a of a um, a fellow service member. Who you didn't know very well, right? But obviously the profound there was something profound about your position as a witness and and it seemed like you were sort of doing the same thing, which is trying to figure out yeah. why this was so profound to you. Um, yeah. I don't know if that's accurate, but that's
0: no absolutely that sort of
1: process of investigation where you go into something not knowing the answer or you want to explain something to yourself, I think is a pretty rich you know, ground for a writer or or an artist? I mean, it's sort of, you know,
0: am I an actor in this or am I a spectator, you know? And if I'm a spectator, am I am I trying on emotions the way somebody watching a tragedy does, right? Or am I actually a part of, you know, do I have a role in this? Um, uh, you know, there's a, there's a bit in, um, uh, there's a, French writer, Rencier, I'm probably not pronouncing uh, his name right, who is talking about the the theater, right? And he's, you know, because there's this sort of like, you know, Plato and Augustine have this difficult relationship with the theater because you're you're feeling emotions, but you're, you know, like when you're watching a tragedy, you're enjoying watching suffering in a weird way. Um, And there's trying to piece through... um, how to think about those emotional reactions, right? Um, and... Recier talks about how, you know, uh, the paradox of the spectator is, you know, there's no theater without a spectator, yet, you know, according to its accusers, being a spectator is a bad thing because viewing is the opposite of knowing. The spectator's held before an appearance in a state of ignorance about the process of production of this appearance and the reality it conceals. Um, and secondly... Uh, being a spectator is the opposite of acting. The spectator remains immobile in her seat, passive. So to be a spectator is to be separated from both the capacity to know and the power to act, um, which maybe got more abstract than I wanted it to. But I think about that in relationship to, because I mean, you know I read about war and it's just sort of like there is an undeniable spectacle of the thing, you know, um, and even though it is not, it is not the theater, right, that Augustine is going to. Um, There is a kind of, there's a way, I think, that we watch reality um, as consumers, as spectators, as if it's theater sometime. I mean, I, I kind of feel that uncomfortably now with the war in Ukraine, where you have kind of like, people are gleefully sharing videos of successful Ukrainian military strikes, and I'm certainly in favor of Ukraine, and, wish them all the success in the world um but there is something odd about you know gleefully sharing videos of people dying right um and uh anyway it's 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 sort of always been something about my a kind of concern when i think about art and and also even my own relationship to these things what is you know, what is my role in this? And is this sort of a genuine emotion or or uh, the please sort of emotion of a spectator? Right. Um, And yeah,
1: I I think that's a self, you know, that's like a a healthy um, instinct toward self interrogation. Um, That probably probably would help keep you honest as a writer, which you always have been. Uh, And I think that interrogation the self interrogation has always been an aspect, as far as I'm concerned, as a as a reader of your work and, and an editor of your work, um, that gives it something that other writers don't. Uh, well, many other writers don't really, really have. Um, but I didn't mean to interrupt you when you were going to. But you were going to read. I guess digressions are part of the the, the platform yeah, yeah. here. Yeah. Yeah. So this, yeah, we'll, we'll get to this is very jazz, but. Um, I, I didn't want to interrupt you, but, but what I was doing, so the whole shock of uh, finding out Gary was dead long after he died and after I wrote him was this cognitive dissonance I had sending an email to someone who had already died. Uh, so I was in this reality in this moment where I thought he was alive, but he was actually dead. And I kept that, those two things kept crashing in my brain. I couldn't really figure it out. So what I wanted to do was try to envision the scene the way Gary would see the scene. If, if he were watching me writing him an email yeah. after he died. So yeah. I think that's, I think that's what you were yeah, yeah. referring to. It, so that's my, this is great. It's my attempt to be Gary. If you <laughs> want to. What would Gary think of this?
0: My writing a note to a dead man who I thought was alive. Was it terrible or funny? Look at his work. I told myself what I knew of Gary told me. Yes. It was funny. Beckett funny. Life is brutal and sucks funny. Lately, I've been imagining how Gary would animate this predicament. It goes something like this. Scene. A simply drawn, middle-aged man, me, hunched over a laptop under a bare, pulsing light bulb hanging from the ceiling of a drab room in an undersized Manhattan apartment. Beads of sweat leap from his forehead, typing, stopping, typing, tap, tapping, types, more soon. Hit send. A paper airplane leaps out of the laptop, circles and swoops around the room once or twice, then sails out the window of the apartment building, zooming through a landscape of skyscrapers, then up higher into the stratosphere, and higher into the ether through the empyrean cities of email servers, then swooping back down to Grand Street um, among apartment buildings dotted with luminous windows, and in each window, each yellow rectangle, mundane New York residents going about the mundane business of their lives, washing dishes, feeding cats, a couple kisses goodnight, curious pigeons peer out from the ledges, perplexed, as though questioning the likelihood of New York. The paper airplane finds its way to the open window of the intended recipient, Gary, sprawled on the floor, motionless, open notebook in hand, with some telltale sign of his physical state, a limb with rigor mortis, a few flies buzzing around his body, a dog sitting patiently by his side, waiting to be walked. Zoom to the open page of the notebook. On it is the same scene, a mirror. Gary sprawled on the floor, open notebook in hand, a limb with rigor mortis, a few flies buzzing around his body, a dog sitting patiently by his side, waiting to be walked, and so on, and so on.
1: It sounds much better when you read it, Phil. (laughs) (laughs) It's great. It sounded in my head, but.
0: I love the curious pigeons perplexed as though questioning the likelihood of New York.
1: (laughs) Um yeah again that's something very much that I if you if you go go through some of the videos that I um I linked to in the piece that Gary animated uh there there are there are always pigeons sort of uh, yeah. showing up and and leaving and looking curious.
0: And you know after that you sort of um <laughs> you make an argument on behalf of of Gary's style, right? You said um I believe Gary would embrace the dark comedy of this situation because his work was not an artistic pose. The pulsating, adrenaline-fueled, bug-eyed, and macabre sense of humor that drove his animations were in fact a worldview. Among the hapless humans and animals that populated his imagination, there also roamed skulls, ironic grim reapers, and playful ghouls. The dead and living hung together, held hands, partied together. They were equals, one and the same. Death was woven into the fabric of life everywhere, These death death messengers were not just there for laughs. They were there to remind us, like the skulls in the far corners of Flemish paintings, that the laughter, at least as we know it, would one day end. But would the end of that laughter, too, be funny? Another kind of funny. A funny that collapses on itself, so compressed by grief that it implodes into a kind of next cosmic plane confetti or silly string. Why not? Um, I love that. And I also, um, you know... I was reading this and I was thinking about Murray's notion in the Omni-Americans where he's talking about jazz um, refers to style, artistic style, as an aesthetic equipment for living. And um, that in Gary's style, I think, and this is what ties, you know, it's not just um, to me this essay is not just in it you know it's like a remembrance of S, of gary as a person and then there's gary as a human being uh right and those sort of sit together uneasily sometimes in in in, in some things about artists right you know and oftentimes there's like this Desire to separate the artist from, the, you know, from the art. You know, you don't want to think about what an unpleasant bastard Evelyn Wall was when you're enjoying his novels, for example, right? Um, but the, the thing that you do here is, uh, and, and let me know if I'm wrong, but it seems like the quality of sort of seeing the world in Gary's, that you find in Gary's work, right, which is, is playful and fun, but, like, alive to the grotesque, to absurdity, to, to horror even, um, though not horrified by it, uh, seems to be related to what you got out of, sort of, your relationship with, got out of is the wrong way, but w- what you experience in your relationship with with Gary, where um, as a friend, what he called out of you were, was similar to the qualities and sensibility of the work. Is that, is that the right way to put it?
1: As, as much as I like to tell you you're wrong, I, I would, I would <laughs> say, uh, I would say that you're, you're right about that. Yeah. It's definitely, um, I mean, I think, you know, the reason I think we, we gravitate toward artists and people, creative people in our lives and our society and our culture, especially when they are fully, uh, formed in their, in their, you know, aesthetic vision and who they are. Um, it's just a really pleasing thing to be able to, to be at peace with the way you see the world, the way you express it and the way you relate to other people all at once. Um, And, you know, Gary was very much like that in this sense of fun, which I also I also um, talk about a little in the piece was really important to me after having been in a very serious work environment for a long time, um, maybe not doing as much art and and um, fun things that I would have liked to um, in the past 20 years it was very refreshing to be with someone who completely embodied, um, you know, all those, all those qualities. And, um, you know, he was, he was a person. So, you know, I would say like that sort of, I would maybe call it radical acceptance as sort of, mm-hmm. the, he, he, he was acknowledging that the work, the world is unfair, cruel, bizarre, and disgusting, but that there was also joy to be had. Um, um, usually in relations between you know humans and animals and you know all the kind of living things on earth and also um, a gratitude you know that quite simply that we were these two guys about the same age uh, he's he a little bit older than I am I'm, I'm nearing sixty um, you know we each had we each had a daughter and we were like sort of in love with our daughters uh, and and, and everything that they represented in life, that we took great joy in being their, you know, parents to them. Um, And that we got to live in New York and that we got to work and we got to eat food. Um, All those little things um, that so many people don't have were sort of um, the subcontext of, you know, being in the room with Gary was that um, isn't this great? Like, you know, we're kind of getting away with something here. We probably don't deserve this, uh, but you know, <laughs> since we're si- since we're 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 getting it, let's enjoy it. Um, and um, that was a very important aspect of his person to me.
0: Yeah, I, there's a kind of rel- I love there's a bit where you, you know you, you tell them about the like tour buses idling outside of Cusars and Russ and Daughters, like these um, you know iconic Jewish. Eateries, and you're right. I thought he might be sad that the Jewish food culture of the Lower East Side had been commodified, but he wasn't. He thought it was funny. <laughs> um, <clears throat>
1: but it is funny.
0: <laughs> yeah, you know. Uh, and there's that kind of relaxed, you know. At one point, you go, and he was a musician as well, and and um, yeah, uh, you uh, you talk about <laughs> going to see. Uh, see him project a video stream behind his bandmates performing bluegrass versions of Velvet Underground covers, Velveeta Underground. The crowd (laughs) was a mix of young and old. No one in the room was trying to make it. We were just present, sailing on a sea of gorgeous weirdness, of steel pedal sound and light with no purpose but joy on an otherwise uneventful night. And um, uh, that sort of relaxation i suppose from uh that i mean in in a way it's that like hyper intense hyper kinetic always moving driven new york city that he's illustrating but poking fun at lovingly um where there's a sort of place to step outside of it look at it enjoy it and not feel that kind of constant pressure and responsibility right um, earlier you say that working with him surprised me and awoke an impulse that had been muted by 20 years of responsible jo- job, holding and text editing for the public. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, I guess there's a question for both of you, but like, you know, you're, you're have a very responsible work. You're the opinion section of, of, of the paper of record, right? Um, Jess, uh, you know, you're doing these sort of nonfiction interviews about war, right? Um, what is, what is the place of weirdness and play and fun in that?
1: Jess, do you want to go first?
0: (laughs) (laughs)
2: Well, I remember, so I don't work very fast. Um, and our, I think our culture really privileges, um, getting stuff out the door really quickly, especially if you're a freelancer. I'm sure Peter knows that better than anybody on this call. Um, But my graphic novel took me 10 years (laughs) to make. And um, like a a large part of my life was just trying to figure out how to do it. Um, And that like experience as a whole, I wouldn't say was very pleasant or fun. And I'm very proud that I finished it because I didn't think that I would. And I'm so happy it will be a real book in August, but I was thinking when I turned in the pages last summer, I really want to draw some butts like I want to draw something (laughs) dumb and stupid and um, not important and um, like just like be like goofier and um, I noticed my preliminary drawings for each chapter got weirder and noodlier as as the project progressed. like I was very fussy and formal lots more detail at the beginning of the project and by the end I was just I think I was going a little uh, like stir crazy like just having been with the project for so long I was still devoted to it but I I think I started playing games with myself because uh, making art or or words and pictures you have to shut out the world and try to make this thing alone so you kind of have to be a good friend and good company to yourself so I just started drawing things really really silly so Um, I mean as silly as you can make it one of the stories has a donkey in it and I got so excited I was like oh my god I've drawn tanks (laughs) in every page but I haven't drawn a donkey yet (laughs) it it came out so like sweet and kind of Disney-ish and goofy and I'm like so pleased with it so I think the drawings in the book that I love the most are when I was having more fun Um, yeah fun seems to be the magic ingredient that like artists and writers can't get enough of because even if you're not working for like a big paper it's a grind even if you're doing like your passion project like it kind of (laughs) sucks
0: one of one of the the comics of yours that that um the veterans love is about a group of vets you did an interview with one vet who tells a story about playing Dungeons and Dragons in Iraq and there's a oh, mortar yeah. strike and yeah. they decide to just keep playing instead of going to a shelter.
2: I should have put that one in the book. I don't know why I didn't. I think maybe I thought I wasn't serious enough. But yeah, <laughs> it is really funny. I mean, the guy that wrote that, um, it was funny. He he does have a chapter in the book and for whatever reason, the two comics I made about this guy were based on emails he sent. The, like his, his prose was yeah. just naturally, he's such a fun storyteller. Um So, and a lot of the other interviews were painstakingly, like, recorded and then made into scripts, but he had a really good knack for finding out what the story was, and even in the sad parts, making it very funny. Um, Like, we're in the middle of the war, but you can, well, I don't know, you can take the nerd out of Iraq, or, like, how would you, (laughs) there's probably some ism, Um, like, nerds are nerds no matter where uh, where they are, even in a war, and... They were also, like, there was some masculine swagger to that. Like, we're not going to go hide under the tables. We're going to keep <laughs> playing our, like, advanced role-playing um, tabletop <laughs> game. We've we've sunk too many hours into our character sheets. Like, I, I like the dedication to it. I mean, it's totally uh, irresponsible, but very funny. Yeah, so I'm all for irresponsibility, if you can have more of that in your life.
1: <laughs> I mean, I, I you know absolutely being an employee of of the new york times is a very particular um role and so like every time i do something like this and i should probably say now that the opinions expressed in this podcast are my own and they do not represent the views or opinions of the new york times <laughs> thank Yay. you um there there's an enormous i mean there's something great so you know being able to work at the times because i do consider it a privilege um, and, and an honor. And, uh, there's an enormous weight to, um, to always take the, the proper course in whatever particular thing you're doing. Those standards might change from project to project or piece to piece. But I think anybody who works there, um, has that, um, um, I won't say hanging over them, but it's a factor in everything you do. Um, so somebody like me who, you know, I, I sort of came into the, the world of journalism through the world of uh, art and fiction writing and poetry, <clears throat> mainly because I loved words. I ended up in a newsroom and then I ended up having this career at, at, in the newsroom. But, uh, you know, it also gave me sort of like a moral and ethical structure and purpose to the work that I was doing. And that was, as a young person, something I needed. And yeah. I think now as an, as an older person where I am now more comfortable with my own kind of moral universe and, and, and like my place in the world, um, you know, I tend to need that less. So relationships like uh, the one I had with Gary, which really was about enjoyment and pleasure yeah. and creativity and not worrying about what you say uh, or, or who you might uh, hurt or offend or whether you've checked a fact or not. Um, having that space in my life uh, when I hadn't for a very long time was really exciting to me. I felt like um, I, I also say in the piece where, you know, I kind of thought I was done meeting new people. You know, it's like I know enough about people. Um, yeah. I really don't want another friend. Um, and uh, and then I found myself being excited that I had a new friend uh, <laughs> in Gary because <laughs> yeah. I knew we would have a good time. You know, it, even if I only saw him twice a year. Uh, three times a year, um, it it was, it was going to be a blast. And, um, you know, I think, you know, another thing I was trying to point out in the piece is that this idea of fun, which, you know, I think at a certain point or a certain, uh, uh, in a certain context in our culture suggests frivolity and things that are not important um, actually has a profound meaning. Like you, you you can read plenty of uh, anthropological and psychological work about play and enjoyment and pleasure and creativity, how those things go into, um, you know, a rich experience of, uh, you know, being, you know, being alive. Um, it's not entirely uh, profitable to focus on that all the time. Um, we all have to work and we all have to pay respects to, um, you know, institutions and, and others who support us and and uh, but but there's a part of uh, the human nature, I think, that just doesn't want to deal with that um, and, and needs to be uh, fed, you know,
0: yeah, there, uh, there's... every
1: now and then. And, and, and as I get older, I find that I, I, I appreciate those opportunities much more.
0: The um, in the piece, you yeah, you have a, a great bit that word again, fun. It sounds trite here, as I try to make sense of a gifted band's untimely death, but fun is one of those words that gathers more meaning the older you get. Over time, it grows less akin to words like amusing, enjoyable, entertaining, and more to words like joyful, healing, life-sustaining, ecstatic. Having arrived at what you expect to be the last quarter of your life with the proverbial clock ticking, fun is no longer just a way to unwind, it is something sacred, profound. In writing to Gary again as we edged back into life, I was asking if he would help me return to that place, the hard-to-find place where being grown-up and fun meet. Um, yeah, which I, I loved. Um, you know, there's a... Uh, there's a <laughs> since my primary references are, are, uh, are war-related, uh, the World War I poet Isaac Rosenberg has a poem... Uh, august 1914 uh uh where he says um what in our lives is burnt in the fire of this the heart's dear granary, the much we shall miss three lives hath one life iron honey gold the gold the honey gone left is the hard and cold iron are our lives molten right through our youth a burnt space through ripe fields a fair mouth broken tooth um and I love that sort of three lives hath one life, iron, honey, and gold, and um, <laughs> the sadness of a life that is only only yeah.
1: iron. Yeah. yeah. Um, um, I, I just want also, uh, I would feel like if, if we had a conversation, I didn't met, mention Kurt Vonnegut, uh, that we would, that would be a huge omission. <laughs> but uh, given, given the war and, and humor and fun and absurdity nexus that we're talking about here but I recently watched this uh, documentary um I sh- I should be remembering the name because it's uh it's um it was it was made a couple of years ago but about Vonnegut um and you know he, there were people who just would not take him seriously because he yeah. was entertaining right. and um he he made a he he you know, several times throughout his career and life, I'm sure. Um, you know, he, he, he protested, he protested against that. Um, you know, he believed that you need to be entertaining no matter what. I think a and, joke is know, a
0: perfectly acceptable form of literature. I think he said. Yeah.
1: I mean, obviously a joke, a joke, you know, a joke, there's only someone, it's always told at the expense of someone somewhere. Um, that's that's a reality of humor it's sort of a hard that's the hard edge of humor um and you know i don't think that his humor was particularly uh malicious in that way except you know he always punched up which i think allowed him to really get away um with 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 going there but you know i think what he was saying is that no matter what you do you have to have other people consume it um or you don't have to, but like it acquires its full meaning when it's either read or viewed or listened to. That there's always someone on the other end, and um, a lot of those people want to want to be entered. They want to enjoy the process, you know. And uh, humor and entertainment, yeah. I think, and fun are are huge aspects um, of of that. And um, yeah, I just. Uh, I think the idea that you have to be, I love serious work too. You know, like I know Cormac McCarthy, is not, you know, it's not a lot of fun to read him sometime, but you know, it's, <laughs> it's not like, I wouldn't say it was fun to read light in August, you know, but you know, I will, I will, I'm forever dedicated to the, you know, art that is that, you know, highly executed so beautifully and so profoundly. But, um, I also know being an editor that nothing nothing matters unless, uh, at at least in this context, unless someone will read it. Um, Yeah. You know, having worked with uh, veterans during the time that you and I first started working together and and when we met, you know, Jess as well. um, I always got this reaction from people, um, which I appreciated, uh, sort of telling me that, I was involved in doing something that was that was like a social good that that had a profound um, uh, purpose. But the truth is, is that I only cared about the writing. Um, mm-hmm. And and the reason that, you know, work that you were doing and the other writers that were who were writing at that time about coming home and about the war worked so well was not because your experience was more important than uh any other veterans experience it's that you were good writers um and i think that's sort of lost a lot in the in the news cycle and the opinion um um you know sort of treadmill where you always have to respond really quickly to things that sometimes that gets lost um and i I really think everything is so I, i was just doing what i was doing then because i enjoyed the writing i thought it was great um I was glad for the, like the positive social ramifications of what I did. Um, but there were definitely side things.
0: Yeah. The, I mean, also like, you, you know, you're talking about humor, right? Uh, and, and people sometimes, this is like my perpetual hobby horse, sometimes people think that humor because it is, because it is playful, because it is fun, is less serious when, you know, that's not the case at all um and uh, you know i think that uh humor is 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 one style of looking at the world and looking at the world truthfully right because the world is absurd and funny and no one knows it better than than a lot of veteran writers i mean some of the funniest literature ever written is about horrific wars you know goodbye to all that is extremely funny the good soldier scheck is extremely funny uh, catch 22 Vonnegut. Right. I mean, slaughterhouse five is, is about an atrocity, right? It's a very, yeah.
1: very funny book. That, by the way, the documentary I just, uh, checked in, it was, it's called Kurt Vonnegut unstuck in time, which is the reference to the, uh, Billy Pilgrim in, 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 uh, in slaughterhouse five. Um, well, but we... yeah, uh, um, catch 22, you know, I, 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 it's just one of the most unbelievably great things I've ever read, uh, that stuck, has stuck with me for 35 years, you know, um, very, 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 very funny and very absurd. Um, and also so, um,
0: so clear-sighted about, it. I mean, I think of Milo Minderbender all the time, right. in, in context, far outside of war. Right. You know, and his his belief that since his obligation is just to pursuing profit and that's the American way, it'd be unpatriotic not to add like sell to, you know, America's enemies as well as to America itself. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Should we um, wrap up, but maybe we should talk a little bit about one of. Gary's works more specifically do do you want to talk about the stone in the piece you narrate it coming into being uh so do you want to talk about that really quickly and then maybe we can we can discuss what he did for you guys and
1: then sure sure so um so as as the editor of this this was a, a basically a a platform for philosophers and not always professional philosophers sometimes professors and um, um, it was sort of a, a, I was trying to merge opinion and philosophy in a way that people would appreciate and be able to um, uh, absorb and, and understand that wasn't really o- overly technical. So we were putting a book of essays together. And, uh, and, and, and so I reached out to Gary to do sort of like a trailer, but a fun trailer that was animated. And I think I went to him immediately because You know when you are involved in a book or you're putting together a book i think you have um even if you can't articulate it at the time you have a vision of what you want the book to do or that you have you have a message about what it is because not everyone's going to be able to open it and read it you know on first on first encounter so uh, i knew that gary's kind of irreverence about everything would work really well in a, in something that was going to have the word philosophy on it, because the word philosophy is very scary to people. And, you know, I would even count myself in that, you know, maybe 10 years ago I, I, I was in that population. <laughs> um, I, I wanted I wanted it to convey something that um, was enjoyable, that involved humor, that had um, language that everybody could understand. And so um, you know, Gary. I sent some notes to Gary about what what I wanted, and I, I wanted it to be a cartoon. I wanted it to be fun, um, and he composed it in a way. You know, there's a caveman uh, at the at who's the protagonist of the animation and banging you know, his head against a rock. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like confused uh, <laughs> member of like said species, uh, just kind of like uh, not really understanding the world, but being in it, which is really what yeah. we all are. Screaming gorilla head even before that. Yeah. Yeah. Philosophy being a way to navigate that sort of learning process about the world. So there's a caveman and and there's, you know, he discovers hunting. He he kills something. He feels remorse. He falls in love. He gets crushed by, you know, a, a big stone, a big rock. So Gary was able to compress all these sort of Profoundly formative life experiences that often drive people to philosophy, and he does it all. He does it all in a minute. Um, you know, the, the the underlying theme is we are hapless um, human creatures, uh, and life is teaching us all these brutal lessons. And the only way we'll be able to get through it in a sane way is to just think about them for a while.
0: Yeah, it's 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 sort of it.
1: What I love about the video is it
0: totally undercuts the sort of any degree of pretension or um, portentousness about philosophy while still seeming to be committed to the questions, right? Or, or yeah. um, you know, it, 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 it uh, yeah, it, it, it approach, approaches it playfully but not in a dismissive way, right, which I
1: like, uh, I like very much. And yeah, the the thank you for the challenge of having us describe a animation on a podcast. That's... It's
0: it's uh, yeah, it's it, I mean it would, it's difficult <laughs> in general, but I think especially with him, like it's so it's so kinetic, it's so wild. Um, Jess, is there? I mean, do you have any thoughts or anything that you sort of take from from Gary's work or anything that that um, that it pushes you? you know, to think about in terms of, you know, how you go forward as a practitioner?
2: Yeah, I mean, <laughs> there's so many artists that I, I don't work in the same um, sort of uh, wheelhouse exactly, so I just admire a lot a lot of what he's doing, but there were things that came up as y'all were talking about, I, I was thinking about maybe part of why uh, Gary's work appeals to me is, um, you know, we've talked about his reverence for certain things, and um, trying to you have um, maybe sadness and mortality on one hand and then just like effervescent joy in the other and trying to mash those together and make something meaningful out of it and he, I think he does that really well but there's also this transgressive quality of joy that Peter referenced and oh my gosh we're having fun at work is anyone going to find out yeah. <laughs> um, and there's also this quality of uh, Gary's work where it feels like the guy in the back of the classroom, I think Peter touches on this a little bit, um, but it feels like someone's passing you a note in class and it's really <laughs> cool. And you're like, oh, if the teacher finds this and, and <laughs> literal pages of Gary's sketchbook look like, oh, like the teacher found our note and now we're in deep trouble. Oh, yeah, He drew boobs on that snake. Now now we've, we're really going to get it. <laughs> um, but I like the idea of like the transgressiveness of joy. And I was like, well, why is joy? Why would it be transgressive? Isn't that something we're all like living towards and yearning towards and um, I actually think the further we go in time the more uh, proper things are and um, Peter was describing working in journalism over a, a span of decades like just being very mindful of what you put into the world it can be really easy to lose sight of joy and then um, just um, the idea of like Peter and I have a mutual friend named Tim Kreider, who's also a writer oh he's and, incredible um, He's he's delightful but um, when I lived in New York we would we would get together and only do errands like very boring errands <laughs> and it felt like um, I finally watched Thelma and Louise for the first time a few days ago and and now I get it though I thought uh, mistakenly that that was like a fun vacation movie for like most of my life and then when I saw it I was like oh this is like about feminism and it's sort of strange and crazy um, so it's it's delightful I also recently saw a weekend at Bernie's and both of these films like I feel like are influencing the way I'm perceiving this conversation but like (laughs) of humor and death like let's keep the party going um but but yeah so like tim and i would get together and we would get so excited tim would be like i have a cd i have to return do you want to go with me yes oh we have to go to the stationary (laughs) store we would find like the driest errand (laughs) occasionally we would get together and eat crawfish uh, at this like restaurant so some but we had to find a particular thing And errands are usually miserable and um, they're especially no fun in New York because everything's, oh, it's just one thing after another. Um, So I like the idea of having a sidekick or a partner to experience discomfort with. Um, Mm. Like I noted, I recently got married and... um,
0: Congratulations. Oh, thanks.
2: (laughs) It's going great. Um, And... uh, I noticed that errands were more fun. Like, I hate going yeah. to the grocery store, and now it's like, did you see? They covered this in chocolate, like Trader Joe's. Yeah. Um, like, I just feel like I turned into a stoner about snacks, um, <laughs> and I didn't have that. I mean, I always like snacks, but um, I just like the enthusiasm that someone's influence can pull pull you into uh, to, to see the world in a new way, and I think that's what Gary does so well. Um, I don't know if I do it in my own art. Um, but I, I think that's, that I would certainly love to.
0: Well, great. Well, um,
1: thank you guys so much. Thank you, Phil.
2: Thanks. Thanks, Phil.
1: Good to see you. I just want to end on, on the note saying it's so great that after so many years of knowing you and working with you and, um, to be chatting here, um, that our relationships are still going strong. I'm happy to be here.
0: Yeah, no, it's 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 uh, always great to see you. And just when is Invisible Wounds it's coming out? Coming out uh,
2: this August, I think it's August thirtieth. It's a graphic novel with with who? It's with Fantagraphics. Um, they do Ooh, most the
0: Yeah, I'm really Legend. excited. Yeah.
2: It looks beautiful. They did a great job. They just sent it to the printer yesterday. So
0: so pre-order, yeah, pre-order it, folks, it. and 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 Peter, you have another stone. Uh, yes,
1: um, uh, Live Right uh, Books, which is a division of Norton, is publishing a book called Question Everything, which will be more than 100 essays from the series, and I believe that's now going to come out in the fall, in October. So look for Question Everything.
0: Awesome. Thank you guys so much, and uh, yeah, may you continue to be a person.
2: <laughs> <laughs> now, Thanks,
1: And from that point of view, it's most improbable that anyone will ever know exactly who is enjoying the shadow of whom. I've given our objector his fair share of program time. When these men talk, I never know whether to regard him as a man of genius or as an ape of genius.